sometimes even quite, you know, colours that I don't love the look of have fabulous stories behind them. And the stories can sometimes make me just as happy as the appearance of the colour. So for me, that, that that's my answer. I don't know whether Lucia has a very different one. No, but you know, uh, it's strange, but today I'm black and white. <laughs> that is strange. We're talking about colour and you're both in monochrome. Welcome to With Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. Today, we're talking about the importance of colour. The purest and most thoughtful minds are those which love colour the most, wrote the Victorian artist and critic John Ruskin in 1851. Colours do provoke a conscious or subconscious reaction in us for no discernible reason. It's an emotional reaction who doesn't have a favourite colour. Colour translates to us as life, energy and passion. So it's hardly surprising after a year when life has felt so limited that we're all craving colour. I'm so delighted today to be joined by Cassia St. Clair, who's the best-selling author of the book The Secret Lives of Colour. And also I'm joined by Lucia Silvestri, the creative director of Bulgari, known for so many years for their extraordinary colour combinations in stones. In particular, we're going to unravel the history of blue and why it's the world's most favourite colour. Lucia, thank you so much for joining us today from Rome. And Cassia St. Clair, who's also in Rome, <laughs> both of you, um, at, uh, and I am in London. But thank you both so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you, Carol. Thank you. So we're here to talk about colour. And Bulgaria's led the way with the use of numerous colour combinations. I know Paolo Bulgari famously said, diamonds are the common denominator of a jewel. But um, Lucia, it really is the coloured stones that's always the star of the Bulgari jewel, isn't it? Yes, of course. And actually, I have to say that uh, I love diamonds. We love diamonds because, uh, of course, they are our best friends. But uh, colour gems are really the stars of the, our jewels. And for this reason, I have to say that uh, our high jewellery starts uh, the creativity starts from the gems. So for this reason, we say that uh, the colors are, the gem, the color gems are the stars of the, the jewels. And is that driven by the colors in Italy? Is it driven by what you see around you? Because I know you've created a lot of connect, uh, collections around the architecture, the floral life, the colors. Yes. Is that what it is? Yes, exactly. And you know, you know that Rome is full of colors and we enjoy every morning the colors uh, in Rome, starting from the sky, the monuments, the, the river and the flowers, but especially the colors of the buildings for me are really, really uh, inspired. So it's, it's very important. Yes, it's true. I remember some years ago when I interviewed you for a big story in yes. Vogue and you said, without color, I would die. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm full of color. And I don't know if one of your questions is, uh, which is my favorite stone, but I have to say that my favorite stone is sapphire because sapphires can be all colors and uh, is a stone that represents the most my personality, full of colors. So I, I cannot live without colors. Well, you had a, a special story about your, your first star sapphire, didn't you? Yes. Yes, my, my special uh, star sapphires, I bought it in, um, in Sri Lanka uh, during one of my uh, trips. And I was uh, actually, I, I was on vacation for two days uh, in Sri Lanka. And I, I found this uh, sapphire after, 
I don't remember how many sapphires I saw and uh, I felt in love from the first side when I saw the, the stone and uh, I, I, I felt I fell in love also with the supplier. <laughs> the, it was a really young uh, boy and it was so nice, so kind that I said, I have to buy it because uh, <laughs> I, I, the, the atmosphere was so incredible. The energy was so beautiful. And so I bought it the, the sapphires. And don't you carry that one with you every day? Every day, every day for, uh, I think now are more than 25 years or something like this. It's amazing. It's a, it's a love story. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Cassia, now I want to ask you the same question. What made you fall in love with colour? Yeah, so there's sort of two parts to that answer. The, the first part is that when I was a little girl, my mother was a, a florist and I went to a London day school and every day after school, I'd leave, I'd walk to her flower shop and I would be, you know, I'd play with the blooms that hadn't made it into the bouquets that day, you know, the kind of the ones that were being tossed aside. And I'd make up little posies out of these blooms and they would be quote unquote sold at the shop the next day. So I, I really enjoyed playing um, with colour and that was very much, you know, part of my my childhood. And I have these very vivid memories of, of being in the flower shop and the flower shop in the 80s. So everything was big and bold and, and colourful. And the second part of my love for colour is more the kind of historical and the, the stories side of it. And that was when I was at university and I studied history. And uh, more specifically, I studied the history of women's um, fashion in the 18th century and women's dress in the 18th century. And this was great fun. It meant reading diaries and letters and newspaper accounts of fabulous parties in the 18th century. And something that I spotted quite early on is that um, although we were talking, you know, that these accounts were written in, in English for the most part, and they were based in the in the city that I lived in, where I grew up and I was very familiar with, there was a colour language that was being used in these accounts that was very unfamiliar to me. They'd refer to, to colours um, that I had never heard of. And I'd have to go away and, and try and find visual references for what, what these colours look like. And sometimes you'd get lucky. You'd find reference to a portrait where someone said, you know, I sat for so-and-so portraitist while wearing my gown of, of hair brown, you know, with, with my um, white uh, Jean-Quil yellow police or something like that and you find the portrait great and then you have a visual reference for what those colours might be but quite often you you couldn't find a visual reference and you're left with the, the written account and these colour terms that are mysterious and elusive and I loved that I loved that there were colours that were shared by a culture and shared in a moment that meant so much to these people and yet had disappeared over time. It was ephemeral, it was like magic. Um, and this just completely captured me and I wanted to write about colours, both the colours that we, you know, we recognise and know and love and have their place in, in art history and fashion um, and, and jewellery, of course, but also these colours that are cultural moments that live for an instant and then disappear almost without trace. I looked actually one time at... Um some of the ledgers um, that were written about um, Marie Antoinette's dresses, and they refer to colours like dauphin, poo. And I mean, it's, you can imagine how descriptive it was at the time, but as you say, it's not something that we'd recognise now. But um, psychologists obviously have long been fascinated by the impact of colour on the human psyche. And what attracts people to a gemstone? And I wondered, Lucia, is it different? What attracts you to a gemstone personally, like your star sapphire, to when you're working and when you're choosing gemstones to create into a jewel? Is it different or is it just the same instinct? Um, it's, it's depends on the gem. And uh, there are many things that attract me in uh, inside of the gems. I, I say that uh, I have to feel the gem. And sometimes it's not uh, only about color. Yes, the first of all, it's a color, but uh, there is a mixture of color, uh, clarity, and inclusions inside of the gems that for me are really the life inside of the gem, the word inside of the gem. 
and for me it's very important the color of course with this small very smart inclusion inside that uh, give the life of the color of the gem so i think you've told me before that you feel that 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 life inside speaks to you yes and so it kind of leaps out in a way yeah you you know uh, if i feel it's it's a really strange uh, relation between me and the gem it's uh, in fact i don't say i see a gem but i meet a gem because for me it's a really meeting a uh, not really uh, a kind of a person because uh, when when i feel a gem i say buongiorno because for me it's uh, it's uh, something that is alive and uh, from the psychologist point of view uh, it's something that me uh, feel me happy mm. make me happy yes so if you're in say you wake up as we say in England the wrong side of the bed and you're in a bad mood does that affect the gemstones that you buy that day but if uh, i have a, but I, personally i have to say if uh, i am in a bad mood after 5 minutes that i meet a gem i feel happy i feel uh, more quiet more calm uh, more relaxed i feel or sometimes if the color is very strong very vivid i feel exciting and i start with music and jams and i start to to play with the colors it depends on the the jams that i meet, i i put on my table well i've i've seen you at your table at work it's incredible yes. so many color gemstones today i was singing with this the starting point of this bracelet is a bracelet with a, just a starting point is a sapphire cabochon uh, silon sapphire and oh, wow. uh, paraiba tourmalines so this is made, made made me a very happy and a very good mood so what did you listen to while you were putting it together this, this morning i was a uh, uh, listen uh, raffaella carrà have to say <laughs> Uh, so it's just um, fun music. So Cassia, we often talk about some colors that have got warm, they're warm, some are cool. We automatically think of reds as warm, blues as cool. Are we right to think that? I think um, yes or no. It's a very useful shorthand for us to be able to divide color in this way because um today if you're an english speaker and you talk to someone about warm colors and cool colors they will automatically understand what you mean more or less but this hasn't always been the same throughout history so in there's evidence that in you know um medieval europe blue was thought of as a warm or a, a even a hot color um in 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 some sources so i think that's very interesting that um the way that we look at color is not necessarily how other people think about color space how they divide it up might not be the same but i think for us you know now it's a very useful distinction it's it's another way of communicating through color um and you know as we just heard color can make people very happy i'm a huge advocate the more people talk about color the happier i am and i think the happier they'll be so the more means of communication and for understanding what we mean that's that, that's a great thing to me but the this division um isn't inherent or or natural because if you look at flames hotter flames some of them are blue so it's not a, an inherent characteristic of colors that some are hot and or cold so where did it come from do you think well i think um it really comes into its own in the 18th century it really began then begins to gather pace as a kind of a, a talking point and a kind of well understood division um in the 18th century and i think it's when you you particularly see it around uh the time of the impressionists when they start thinking about color theory in a new way they start dividing color space in a in a more interesting way and using some of the more um deeper scientific understanding of light to compose um images that play off contrasts and this idea of contrasts obviously feeds into to warm and cool so you start getting artists mixing together bright contrasts both in the complementary color wheel sense but also in this sense of 
warm and cool and it was just another way of them dividing colour space to create these contrasts. So it's relatively modern really. Relatively yeah. Mm. And I'm interested that you've both focused on colour and happiness and you say it's colour's fundamental to our experience of the world so do you think the people who are in monochrome all these fashionistas in black and monochrome are unhappy inherently? I I mean, I'm wearing a black dress today. I, I think of black and white as, as colours and I think they can bring as much joy. I mean, for me, of course, I think it's a bit different because it's not just the visual experience, it's also the stories behind them. And there are wonderful colour stories um, involving darker and, and sometimes even quite, you know, colours that I don't love the look of have fabulous stories behind them and the stories can sometimes make me just as happy as the appearance of the colour so for me that that that's my answer I don't know whether Lucia has a very different one no but you know uh, strange but today I'm black and white <laughs> that is strange we're talking about colour and you're both in monochrome no I'm, I'm black and white but I the earrings I always wear colour Anyway, so I'm black and white, but uh, you you couldn't see. But I have uh, earrings with the the color green, uh, brown diamond, and tanzanite. So with colors. So for me, a touch of color is fundamental. But I think that uh, black and white, I associate black and white are pearls and onyx. So for me, they are colours. So anyway, they are colours. Yes, I guess. And Coco Chanel used to say black has everything and so does white. They have everything. Exactly. Yes. exactly. But I exactly. want to talk about blue in a bit more depth. Um, in Japan, it's the colour of refined elegance and sophistication. And it seems that we've endlessly, from the time of the first human, been drawn to the colour of the sky and the heavens but I know from reading your book, um, Cassia, that that wasn't always the case. Blue was not traditionally a popular colour, was it? No. So there was a, a very long period of time where in the West, um, blue wasn't um, very popular and, and was had quite negative associations. It was associated with with barbarism um, for a long time. If you look at very early Christian writers, they, they hardly mention blue. It's not very popular at all and it doesn't get, a, a, it doesn't have a big cultural place. But this suddenly changes um, when it becomes associated with the Virgin Mary. And as the, the kind of the, the cult of the Virgin Mary and, and her place within Christianity, um, you know, grows and becomes more prominent. So this color that is associated with her grows too. And you get the, you know, very lush use of um, blue ultramarine pigments in paintings um, of the Virgin Mary. You know, you quite often see these, these lovely um, uh, paintings of her when she's wearing a, a blue blue cloak or a, a blue gown. Usually that's done with ultramarine pigment. And um, ultramarine was one of the most expensive pigments um, an artist could use. And so it was a way of patrons and artists of um, showing their devotion to the Virgin Mary by using this very expensive colour. Um, and it was also a way of patrons of, of, of demonstrating their wealth. There are records of um, patrons drawing up contracts with artists to specify that a certain area of a painting had to be uh, ultramarine and even, you know, uh, talking about the quality. And some of sometimes the mistrust was so deep or there was a fear that the artist would shortchange the, uh, the patron. So you have these these contracts um, in in which it says that the uh, the patron will buy the raw ultramarine and kind of dish it out to the artists in increments to prevent there being an exchange for a, a cheaper, inferior pigment. So this was about the 13th century? Yes, the 13th century. The, and so that was a sea change for blue? Yes. That it began to be popular? Yes. Because would you say now it's one of the most popular colours? Yeah, I, I think in, in surveys that have been conducted since the Second World War in almost every continent and um, you know both men and women, blue is almost always overwhelming the favourite. So its star has risen completely and it's now kind of a really a, a global um, favourite. It's very popular um, both with ordinary individuals. It's also very popular 
you know, with, with brands and in marketing, lots of companies use blue to um, try and gain these kind of positive associations. So it, it it's now an incredibly popular colour. Is that the same in gemstones, Uchia? I know in your latest Magnifica collection, I mean, we have those staggering Pariba tourmalines, but often you have sapphires somewhere within your your creations, don't you? Yes, I can say that uh, the sapphire, so the blue sapphire can be the definitely the Bulgari gem, starting from uh, my favorite uh, jewels in the collection, uh, in Bulgari heritage collection, it is the, the sapphire, uh, sugarloaf sapphire from Elizabeth Taylor necklace, soutoir, and is a is a blue sapphire sugar love so intense. So I I told before that sapphire is my favorite stone. Not only because uh, there are many colors, but also because you can explore different kind of blue. And I love all the sh- shadow of blue. And uh, I remember when I started to work here in Bulgari and selected uh, sapphires with Mr. Bulgari. One, uh, one, one day he said, uh, it was very excited about uh, one sapphire and uh, he said, this is, uh, I, I say in Italian, then I say in, in English, he said, questo è manto di Madonna, Vir- Virgin Mary's mantle, from, a, a, from a, a painting from Antonello da Messina. It's very, very famous painting, and this blue is a, a velvet blue, so intense, so warm. And every time that I see something similar, I say, this is Manto di Madonna, that is very warm and soft blue. So there are different shapes. For this reason, I love Sapphire, because... Uh, you can see different shadow of blue, different tones of blue, and they are so from a cold uh, striped blue or a very uh, a little bit purplish or a little bit gray. So there are different kind of blue for and and I love the fact that you you can see the different between sapphire from uh, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Madagascar, and. Uh, other countries. So they have a different, um, a slightly different variation in the blue from the different regions. Yes, exactly, exactly. exactly. And is there anything that you wouldn't mix blue with? Does blue go with every other gemstone, every other colour? I love to mix blue with green. That is a typical Bulgari uh, combination, uh, blue sapphire and emerald. But I love also blue with pink. So we can match blue with so many colors and, and also you can mix blue with Paraiba, for instance. And uh, yes, it's a, a stone that uh, uh, you can mix quite easy with everything. Uh, something that I don't like very much is blue and red together. But with diamond, so uh, rubies, sapphires and diamond, can, I love it, but... Uh, just red and blue, it's something that is too uh, too dark together. Good excuse to get a few more diamonds in it. <laughs> yes, yes. But Cassia, you, you describe in the book that, um, firstly, I thought there were more chapters in your book on blue than virtually any other colour, from the sort of cobalt, indigo, Prussian, Egyptian. Is that true? Were there more, is there more history around blue? I'm not too sure if there's more history, but I, I can say that some, I wanted each chapter, you know, the, the book is, uh, uh, The Secret Lives of Colour is broken down into various colour chapters. There's, you know, a chapter on white, a chapter on black, a chapter on brown, pink, and so on and so forth. And when I was planning the book, I knew that I wanted each chapter to be roughly the same um, length, to have the same, roughly the same numbers of, of, of colours within it, or shades within it. But some chapters were much easier to fill than others. 
And um, sometimes when I, you know, I, I plan the book and I sent it off to, to the agent and we, we agreed a structure and I'd start researching a particular shade and maybe I'd plan to put it in, in yellow, for example, and I'd find it trying to sneak off into orange or brown because when you look at the, the raw material, maybe it can, you know, be used in a different way or maybe it's got a, a, a slightly different history to the one you think. And so sometimes colours were kind of sneaking off into other chapters. With blue, it was so easy to fill that chapter. There were so many great blue stories and I could have gone on and, and included so many more shades. So so blue was a very easy chapter for me to write. And for that reason, it was the very last one that I focused on. I, I did the book colour by colour and I left blue till last because I knew I'd have no problem <laughs> with it. So, so it was a nice treat for me to end on when I was kind of crawling to the finish line. Blue was there at the end waiting for me. Um, as, as a, a nice, easy finish. And you describe, maybe this is why blue is so fundamental to us, that as mammals, we're hardwired to perceive light and that blue is critical in that. Can you explain why? Yes, so I think quite often when we talk about blue light now, people have a kind of negative reaction to it because we're used to hearing about it as a disruptor to sleep. But essentially, blue light is... it it naturally gives us a boost of uh, attention and energy and, and so on and so forth. And it helps set our, our circadian rhythm, it, you know, the time when we get up and when, and when we go to sleep and our natural um, cycle. Blue light is kind of fundamental to helping regulate that. And a study was done on, on blind mice and even these, you know, these blind animals were sensing blue light and it was setting their, their daily rhythm, which I found um, completely fascinating. But of course, the negative side of that is if we're bombarded with blue light at the wrong time of day, you know, at nighttime, just before we're about to go to sleep, we're looking at our phone screens or our computer screens and getting, you know, hit with a lot of blue light, that is you know setting us um it is it's disrupting our natural cycle um so that is sort of a, a downside of 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 blue light but really like you know as you said it's something that is hardwired into us and it is fundamental for our for our health and well-being and i was interested because you describe that blue light as electric blue mm. and i think this is exactly how one would describe the Pariba tourmalines that um, Lucia chose for um, the Magnifica collection. Lucia, is that how you describe the Pariba? Is it electric blue? Electric blue mixed with green is not exactly blue. It's a mixture between blue and green and uh, electric. Yes, for sure it's electric. It's uh, something very special. And uh, we are using this kind of uh, uh, color. And uh, I mean, we are using uh, uh, Paraiba uh, tourmalines, something that you can mix with blue that is uh, the, the, the really uh, just show the bracelet that we are studying. That is exactly the example of Paraiba, blue electric Paraiba with uh, blue sapphire. That is something that uh, we love and uh, we not discover, but uh, we love to create a new, a new collection with this kind of combination. But I'd like to show you also something that uh, I love and is this kind of blue. Can you see or not? I can no, see a blue sapphire coming my way. Blue. And it's blue sapphire. <laughs> Oh, wow. You see? A very oh, deep beautiful. blue sapphire. Incredible. Exactly. And have you mixed that with enamel? Is that... With, with, no, with turquoise. With turquoise, I can ah. see, yes. yes. Beautiful. That's gorgeous. And just to show the different different kinds of blue. Two kinds of blue. One is more deep and one is more open color. You see the difference between the two blue? You know, now you tell me I see the difference. I think it's very hard for lay people 
to see those minute differences that to you are very obvious in in color you see that just to to show you how many kind of blue we can have in nature and then you use the other paler blues to bring that out exactly exactly to sort of frame frame the sapphire exactly so what did you think when you saw those five huge pariba tourmalines what did you think ah, when you saw them? i was uh, i was uh, you, you know i was thinking about a sardinia sea Sardinia Sea is a blue, green, electric blue. And so immediately, immediately, I, I'm not possible, immediately I, I have the, the, the sketch here with the, the Paraiba. Yes, exactly. So I, I, I immediately thought that Sardinia, Sardinia Sea. And, uh, uh, so I, I thought that we had to to use all of them together because uh, you have the sensation to have the sardinas here around the neck. How nice. And for anyone listening, don't worry, I'm going to put all these images on the Instagram page and on our website so you can have sardinia sea <laughs> around your neck as well <laughs> in your imagination. <laughs> Um, but actually, Cassie, you describe it as you say that this electric blue is shorthand for modernity and it's the colour of the future. Yes, uh, this is something that I found really interesting. I think when you look at sci-fi films and in popular culture, you quite often see electric blue coming up as kind of shorthand for the for the future in lots of different films and in popular culture. And I thought of that as being a fairly recent phenomenon. But when I look back, I saw that Victorians were also thinking about electric blue as being the colour of modernity and, and people were wearing, you know, electric blue gowns to balls to pose as electric light and, you know, this kind of idea of the future. And I found that really entrancing that this was a colour that had retained a kind of a, a cultural weight for such a long time um, in the popular imagination. And, you know, I think it's quite hard sometimes for um, things to be perceived as modern because, you know, if you're too closely associated with something modern at one time, sooner or later you're going to become antiquated. And yet electric blue seems to have escaped this fate and retained this idea of um, the future, something bright, maybe something a little bit um, intimidating and, and frightening sometimes as well, if we don't have that that faith that uh, we have the ability to, to control the future in a, in a positive way. So having talked about the future blue, now if we can go back to the oldest blue that from the ultramarine pigment pigment because that was created using the gemstone lapis lazuli wasn't it originally um can you describe how they did that briefly absolutely so um ultramarine pigment is um manufactured as you say from this precious stone um lapis lazuli most of the um ultramarine that you see in western art you can trace it back to a, a, a single mine a single source um that is in um a very remote part of afghanistan uh, the sarasang mines and uh the lapis lazuli would be um taken up from 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 the earth brought up in great lumps of of rock put onto um, pack animals, you know, camels and donkeys, and would find its way into the, the sort of network of trade routes that we now know as the, the Silk Roads and would be traded, um, you know, across these, these continents and would eventually, some of it would eventually um, head west and make its way into to Europe, usually through um, Venice. Venice were, uh, it was sort of a principal port city and a lot of um, Europe's, uh, ultramarine came from there in the form of, of, of lapis lazuli. Um, once it got there, it still had quite a way to go in uh, in order to make it onto to, um, painted surfaces. It had the stone had to be ground down into a into a powder and it then had to be purified. When you look at a, um, a, a piece of, of lapis lazuli, it's not just pure blue. It quite often has occlusions in it, um, maybe uh, some sparkling areas of, of uh, iron pyrite and then also some kind of um, whitish, almost look like 
clouds um, uh, from various sort of deposits of, of minerals within the stone. You need to get these out if you want a pure blue pigment. So once the, the it's all been ground down to a powder, it would then be mixed with various um, mastics and waxes to form a kind of doughy mixture. And this, this would then be kneaded similar to the way you might knead dough in a solution of lye. And while it's being kneaded, the small blue particles would fall out of this dough mixture and settle at, at the bottom of this uh, lye solution. And the lye could then be tipped off and you'd be left with this bright blue sediment. And this could then be used as a pigment. And this is what um, patrons and artists were fighting over because of its expense and because it showed you had the the most luxurious colour that you could get. Absolutely. You know, it, was, it had come a long way. Um, if you're buying it in Western Europe, it had come a long way. It had come all the way from Afghanistan and passed through multiple different hands along the way. And then also it had to be, you know, it had this tortuous process to get it into a workable pigment. And so at some points in history, um, lapis lazuli, this, um, uh, the ultramarine pigment, was more expensive than gold gram per gram. So Lucia, are your clients ever driven to get the best stone they can that shows that it is a sort of prized treasure. So in the same way as um, these patrons who who wanted to prove their wealth by having this luxurious ultramarine pigment, or are they more driven by the the purest colour that they can find? Uh, it depends on the culture of the client. And uh, it, it depends. Sometimes we, uh, we have clients that are looking for the purity and only the color. For, for them, it's important only the color uh, and without inclusion. So color has to be blue, pure blue. Sometimes, and I'm one of, of this, I prefer to have a color, beautiful color, of course, vivid color, but with a mixture of something inside that show me that the stone is alive. So uh, I love a little bit less color, less dark, but more happy color than dark color that sometimes is much more expensive. But I, I prefer for my eyes to, I prefer to have something more happy, more brilliant, more vivid than dark and soft. So it's a, it, for clients, it's, it's the same. And so do you do a lot of education about colour when they come to see the stones? We, we, explain, we explain our suggestion, but uh, we leave them free to decide because it's important to feel the gem that you are buying because it's something that you are, uh, you are, you are buying for yourself or for your kids or forever. I don't know, but we, we give them the suggestion, but is the, is different from, uh, for instance, from diamonds. When you choose a color gem, it really something subjective. So maybe something that I love, maybe you don't like. So it's something very personal. And we give our suggestion, but of course, uh, they have to decide. And in the same way that um, some of these artists use these coloured pigments, do you think um, that as a jewellery designer, you use colour in a similar way to artists? Mm, in some way, yes. But it's, uh, I think that uh, it's also very uh, natural. I mean, I don't think that it can be... Uh, cold color with a warm color. I just mix and for me, a, a key word is harmony. So when I feel the harmony between the gems, between the colors, for me, it's a, it's a natural, a, a right combination. So for me, it's something that I, I feel in a natural way, but for me, the, the key word is really harmony. But when I've watched you in your, your stone room and, and you're almost doing sort of washes of colour against a, a piece of paper, a design to roughly see how those sort of colours work together. It's almost like in a palette of paint, really. Yes, yes, it's really similar. I feel like a painter, actually. Uh, I don't have a, a rule. 
I just feel the gems. I play with them. I play with colors. I play with different shadow of colors or completely different colors. But I really, I feel like a painter because you, you saw my table and uh, it's a, a table full of colors. Uh, any kind of gem from uh, turquoise to sapphire to rubies to uh, emeralds. So any kind of colors. And do you find that with some of your clients, some their fashions in colour, do you feel that, that sometimes you're using particular, like at the moment, there seems to be quite a lot of Pariba. Do you find that these come in waves of fashions, that people discover a new stone and then want to buy quite a lot of it? So uh, we, we would like to, uh, to, 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 um, to do uh, the, the, the jewels with our, to make jewels with our DNA. And so with our style uh, to, and we, uh, we have our style, we have our uh, combination of colors. But of course, we follow a little bit the, the market and also the fashion, the fashion uh, moment. In this moment, uh, Paraiba is one of the fashion uh, gems that you, you can find in the market. And uh, we use Paraiba in a Bulgari way. So we mix Paraiba with other gems. We don't use Paraiba, just Paraiba, but we use Paraiba with other gems. This is our way to use a kind of fashion gem. Did you see the, the Paraiba necklace? It's a, a mix with uh, emeralds, for instance. So uh, two kind of bluish green with the real green. So it is a Bulgari way to mix a paraiba. And Cassia wrote in her book about colour men in early history, bringing rare pigments from across the globe, making these these extraordinary colours and coming along the Silk Road. And I thought that's really how, obviously, all the gems were traded at the same time, the emeralds, rubies coming over to Europe. Um, do you do you still rely on people to come and bring you stones or do you prefer to get out on the road and go and travel and find them? I prefer to travel and find the gems. And uh, of course, uh, we we can have a special special order from them. And uh, from the, the moment you remember when, when you came to my, my room for the first time, mm-hmm. from that moment... Uh, we invited some special client to my room and we discovered that uh, very special clients prefer to come to my room and then at this, this store in Via Condotti because they can play themselves with colors, with my, my guides, with my suggestions. So it's something that uh, it's, we can share emotion that when we uh, create jewels, we create emotions. So when we uh, are together, especially here in this room that you know very well, uh, when we play with colors, we play with emotions. And this is something that is uh, really important before to to work with a finished product, before to have a, a jewels. We share emotion. And for me, emotion means also energy, uh, good vibes, so it's a, it's a special moment with, with clients, yes. So Cassia, do you, in your study, looking back through history, do you notice different fashion, colour fashions coming and going? Absolutely. Um, you definitely see trends for certain colours. I think Marie Antoinette was, was brought up in the conversation a little bit earlier. There was a, a really big trend in, in, in her day for a colour called puce, which you know, is the French word for flea. This was flea colour. And it became so popular that there were various um, sub-colours. There was flea's back and uh, flea's leg colour. And people were buying dresses and mantles and all sorts in, in this particular shade. A few years later, it disappeared and, and there hasn't really been a big trend for, for puce um, since then. There are other wonderful colours that kind of had their moment um, in uh, medieval England, including... Um, uh, goose turd green was bizarrely fashionable for a short period of time. Not the most appealing colour you would have thought. And yet people found beauty, uh, if, of some kind in it. And, you know, no doubt humour as well. Uh, I think humans, we are, 
we like having a shared understanding, a cultural moment. Um, and that can be in colour as with many other things. We enjoy sharing um, conversations about particular novels or particular films. And it's the same with colour. We can join around and have a moment around a shade. And it may not um, seem particularly appealing to generations that, um, that, you know, uh, that follow, but that doesn't matter to us if we find joy and um, a shared uh, emotion around this shade. Um, one of the colours that I talk about and give this example in the book is is avocado that had this huge moment in the 1970s in interior decoration um, and then you know hasn't really come back in the same way since although now avocados are having another moment in a slightly in a, in a different guise with all the avocado toasts but you know as a color in which to decorate your bathroom it's it's just not it, it's not there in the same way but you also describe how misleading the word avocado can be, because do you take the colour of the skin, the colour of the stone, the colour of the flesh? So do you think in some of our descriptions of colour, we should be more specific? Absolutely not. I think the roominess that colour language gives us is part of the, the charm. I love the fact that um, in the 1970s, people could say avocado and everyone else would know what they meant. And now that meaning is is slightly lost. We, you know, in, if we look at photographs, if we look at pictures, we'll, we'll get that sense back. But at the time it existed as a, as a, as a shared understanding of what the colour was, of what it looked good with. And I think that's that's very important. And it's also natural. We need a, a shorthand conversation. It's the same thing with, you know, millennial pink um, when, you know, there are lots of different millennial pinks, but everyone understood what what that shade was and what was generally meant by that um, colour description. Uh, so I think it's uh, I, I love that these things have their moments and I, I, I enjoy the roominess and the, the this is uh, the wrong term, but the grey area that you get with colour terminology. Um, but, you know, this was the argument in The Secret Lives of Colour. But then when I came to designing the book, I found myself in the slightly ridiculous position of having to pin down some of these looser colours because, you know, we needed to have a a, a visual um, aid for, for unfamiliar colours. And so each page has the, the relevant colour at the side, but you then have to pin down what is the colour of ultramarine, the one colour of ultramarine or the one colour of emerald. And you find yourself in the ridiculous position of having to to choose the, the perfect example, which was not my intention at all. So do you feel there's a, a new colour around the corner that's going to be say our next season's colour absolutely that will be popular absolutely and I, I can't wait to see what and it is what, what do you think that will be at the moment I'm very drawn to um oranges and, and yellows in a way that I never have been before um and I've heard a lot of people during lockdown have talked to me more about yellows than I've ever been talked to about yellow before um, a few years ago people only wanted to talk to me about pink and now it's all about yellow um so I I feel that maybe it's yellow or, or orange um but who knows? And who knows what ridiculous name it'll have, um, but I can't wait to see. And Lucia, um, is there a gemstone colour that's been a bit forgotten that you want to rediscover or a new stone on your table that you can't wait to use for the next collection? Uh, I am talking about uh, yellow and orange. I would say that I'd like to work, I'd like to discover, I didn't, uh, I didn't do yet, I'd like to discover the best uh, Paracha Sapphire. Do you know about Paracha Sapphire? I do, but describe it to the listeners. Okay. This, the Paracha Sapphire, that, uh, the, the, the meaning is uh, the color of the um, sunset in uh, Singhalese. And uh, is the color is a, is a mixture, it's a perfect mixture between orange and pink. It's very, very rare. It's quite impossible to find the perfect gem. So I found it one uh, two months ago and immediately we sold it. So I want to find another one because uh, we sold uh, too quickly. So I'd like to have another one and to create a, a special jewel with a patparacha sapphire. And you know which the color was... Uh, 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 mix the, the paparaccio, which, uh, which color we used. Uh, we use 
violet. So pat paracha, so pink and then orange with violet sapphires. So what we, we made a, a special ring for a special client, but is uh, it was really, really amazing. And my dream is to find another one bigger than that and create a beautiful necklace. This is my dream. Well, it sounds like you're both seeing the same colour around the corner. It's a sort of yellow, pinky, orange <laughs> sunset. And that sounds really exactly. uplifting for the time we've had. And um, I can't wait to see it. And I can't wait to see what you're going to create with it, Lucia. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I, I'm starting to look at, uh, for this gem. It's not easy because we found it two gems, but not beautiful enough. And uh, so I'm, I'm waiting for the, the right one. But believe me, the color is, a, is a really a sunset color. And especially here in Rome, if you put uh, the stone, the real patparaccia with the sun, Roman sunset, they have the same color. Beautiful. Yes. Beautiful. So we, are, we have the same uh, sensation, yellow, orange, pink, uh, similar cashier. Lucia, thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy and that they have to whisk you off somewhere now. So I really want to thank you and thank you for sharing it with us. And it's been very interesting to talk to you and see your mood board behind you of all your yeah. people. And I see an old folk cover down there on, yes. <laughs> on the mood board. So that's really lovely to have a little peek at what's inspiring you. Thank you, Carol. And uh, I'm waiting for you in Rome. Huh? I'm coming. Please. I'm coming. Oh. <laughs> Cassia, thank you so much. Not at all. And I also hope you managed to, to find that dream stone so that you can create your wonderful necklace and then I can admire it on, on Instagram, hopefully, or, or maybe even uh, in the flesh. That's brilliant. That would be wonderful. Thank you. And can't wait to hear more about your next book. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jules Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwilton.com slash if Jules could talk. And if you liked it, please share it any way you can. You'll find us on Instagram and please subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts, where we'd love a rating and a comment. Please join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget, when I'll be talking about artist jewellery. It may be the smallest testimony to their time, but it's arguably the most intimate. Engraved pebbles, medallions and jewels. Very little known, but an important part of the artist's work. In particular, we'll be talking about a new exhibition at the Museo Picasso in Barcelona and unravelling why Picasso pursued secrecy for these ornaments that he produced. Please join me then. Goodbye. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton.